Now to the South Island, and arguably the jewel in Mutueka's crown, Toad Hall. What started off as a greengrocer in the town's main street has been transformed into an organic farm to table operation, and is one of New Zealand's best-loved cafes. It also scooped the title of Best Café in this year's New Zealand Hospitality Awards. Its owner and founder, Angie Morris, Westport-born and educated, a competitive Ironman triathlete, a former police officer, and more. She is uh, now in charge of an institution that hums in summer with 100 staff and 1,400 customers streaming through the doors daily. Usually she's conducting the kitchen pass but she's with us now i hope it's not all falling apart angie good morning good morning how are you i'm really good thanks congratulations on the award what what's involved in this what do you have to do well um you you do have to you get nominated you get asked to enter you enter you have to write a bit of a story about yourself and um you talk about your ethos, your the um, what the business beliefs are, what the visions and goals are about the business, and how you operate. And um, one of my uh, managers here decided he would do all that work. That's something that I usually wouldn't spend time doing, so I wouldn't normally enter in a um, an award like that because I don't have the time. And so, yeah, one of my lovely staff decided he'd put pen to paper and send off our story and. Um, yeah, as you said, we won it, which is amazing, and it's an amazing recognition for all the hundreds of thousands of hours of hard work from all of the staff that have been a part of our team over the last 16 years. Well, well done, that staff member. And what's been the response since? Um, is, it, is the word getting around the locals? Are you getting plenty of good feedback? Oh, amazing. You know, I, we've always been so grateful for for the love of our community and the wider community sort of going through to Nelson and Blenheim and places like that. But just the messages and, and old, some of our older customers dropping in lovely congratulation cards and, and flowers, and it's amazing. It, it makes you realise how much hospitality is part of the social fabric of community. Well, Total's a Mutuika institution, and... and it- you know, for many reasons, but it's right on the main drag as you come into town from Nelson or as you're leaving. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're, so, so it's very visible. Um, and beyond that, you've built your place in your community. Where, where were things at when you bought the property back in 2007? When we first purchased it, it had historically been a, a market garden and a tobacco growing um, farm for quite some time, but Due to the family circumstances of the previous owner, the market garden had had ceased operation probably six or seven years before we took over, and um, and he was really ready to move on to greener pastures or or less green green pastures, so he could have a bit more of a relaxed lifestyle with his children. And we took over. It was well overgrown. Uh, the church hall that's at the front, which is the acronym TOAD, is the old Anglican diocesan hall. It was moved from the other end of town uh, three or four years before we took over as a um, potential art gallery. But somehow it ended up being a real fruit ice cream institution. And in those days, it was really just the fruit and veg um, that had been purchased from the markets in Nelson and a uh, real fruit ice cream area for people to buy. And that w- and we were the re- first real fruit ice cream outlet in the area. So that's probably what put Toad Hall on the map with um, the locals and the travellers to the region for the summer. 
um, for all the holiday homeowners and things. That that's probably what we were best known for in those days. It's huge now, isn't it? I know. I'm a boysenberry fan, and I always get frustrated when they say, "Sorry, we've run out of boysenberries." Um, they're all everybody's ice creams. It's everywhere all yeah. over Mott now, right? True. True. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. you so Definitely. you began there. So that was a strand of business that that took off. But what about the development of the farm and and the farm to plate concept? That's something that takes years to develop, right? It does, and and that was a a really big part of the reason why we bought this beautiful property is that the potential to grow our own food, which was really important to us at that time, because we were realising how hard it was to to get really fresh, healthy food, even back sixteen, seventeen years ago. And um, just the sustainability and ethical element of, of how to run a business that's not um, causing more harm to environment and, and that kind of thing was really important to us. So Hamish, my partner, he's spent the last 16 years piling the compost on out there. Um, so in the middle of summer, we produce almost a tonne of compost through the cafe, being, you know, outer leaves of cabbages and lettuce and, and salad veg to, you know, all the scraps off the plates and, and everything like that. So up to a tonne a day he was taking out on the tractor and um, lovingly placing in in the field that was to become the market garden. So... That land now has had 16 years of absolutely stunning composting and that's why it's now at such a prime um, spot ready for growing some beautiful vegetables. Which that's, it just, is. that's just doing my head in. How much a day was going out? Up, up to a tonne of compost a day go, goes out of here in summer. Isn't that insane? I, I, I can't process it. I mean, how yeah. do you process it? Like, like, What's the system you have to even make that manageable? So we have, obviously, our business right from day one has been set up as a sustainable business. So we separate everything out. So there's obviously compost bins, there's paper waste, there's plastic uh, waste, there's tins and, and glass. And so everything's separated out. And during, in the winter, that gets cleared every evening and separated and put into the appropriate places. Whereas in the summer... Hamish is coming back and forth on the tractor throughout the day, taking away the bins, emptying them, washing them, bringing them back so they can be filled again with more scraps of food, more, you know, all the all the prep. There's, you know, invariably three or four chefs out the back prepping food and there's three or four chefs in the kitchen cooking food. So you imagine there's a lot of scraps from that and the scraps left on people's plates in the restaurant. Okay, so at the time, um, we should say the name, we should explain the name, it's not a nod to the Wind and the Willows, uh, it actually reflects the building that you were telling us earlier about, right? It's an yes, acronym. It does. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's, it's got a bit of a history, the hall. It's been, it was the original schoolhouse in Motueka in the 1800s. It was sold from being the original schoolhouse to what I believe to be the Salvation Army, and the Salvation Army used it for a period of time. Then they sold it to the Anglican Church, which is where it's stayed for hundreds of years, or uh, you know, probably close to a hundred years. And then it moved down here. So that's what the acronym stands for: is the Old Anglican Diocesan <laughs> Hall. Yeah. Um, how much investment in that, by the way, uh, over time in an older building, and, and to get it, you know, to uh, a, a functioning kitchen and an environment that you want people to be in, has that been another big part of the project? That has been a, an ongoing, and it still is. You know, like it's an old building; it needs lots of love all the time, and it, it's it's something that just constantly. You know, there's, that's where good old Kiwi ingenuity comes in in the early days. 
So most of that work um, was done ourselves to get things um, clean and, and hygienic and able to be certified by the council for a food operation. That was all done by us at night when our small children were asleep on mattresses in the shop. So, you know, that I think that's the story of any Kiwi um, business that, that has to endure the years of, of, you know, like little money and, and lots of expenses is that you're doing it yourself when the business is closed so you can reopen the next day. What was your vision for it? You mentioned you had your eyes on the land and you knew what you could do there, but what was your vision for the, the whole business at that time you took over? And, and what so, drove it? So we had four small children at the time and we spent a lot of time travelling around New Zealand to craft fairs with uh, a small woodwork business we had and we realised that it was near impossible to find a pleasant place to dine with four lively children and be served healthy, nutritious food. You know, we were left with the choice of McDonald's or Chipmunks play area that you could get a bowl of chips and some saveloys and that really wasn't what we wanted to feed our children. And so we had always dreamed of having or wished that there was a place that you could go with children, that you could be relaxed and have a conversation while the children played happily without annoying or upsetting other diners and there was good food. And really, up until we set Code Hall up, we still hadn't found that place. And so that probably was instigating the vision of, surely if we want somewhere nice and natural and healthy to um, dine with our children, then there must be hundreds of other people that feel the same. What are the strands of the business now then, 16 years on? Where's the cash flow coming? Various sources? Uh, various sources. Um, definitely not from the market garden, put it that way. So the, the, as you can imagine, a market garden is hugely labour intensive. And, um, you know, it takes years and years to get it to a point of productivity where it's sustainable and it's producing an income. Uh, so Toad Hall's been funding the, the garden side of it, but it's something that's really dear to all of our hearts. It's, it's part of the sustainability journey. It's part of the ethos on we are feeding you the freshest, healthiest food we can possibly find. Um, then we've got the ice cream division, where we've got gelatos and sorbets and real fruit ice creams. We've got um, we've had a an amazing baker work for us for the last seven or eight years. He works all night when the business is closed, produces all of the cakes, all of the bread, and um, everything in the cabinet. Um, he he's producing that while the business is closed. Then we've got a cold press juice. Um, to our business, which is another thing that's really dear to our heart. And it started also as a part of the sustainability and nutrition vision of the business where, you know, we live in in prime apple country and all these apples were going to waste because they might have had a small spot on them. So we get all the second apples and cold press them. So we're pressing at the moment, even at this time of year, we're pressing about 100, 150 litres a week. And that's the cold-pressed juices that we sell through the shop. Um, you could have them in the restaurant or you can grab them in the takeaway bottle. You've got a green and grocer, basically, as yeah. well, haven't you? Yeah, green yeah, grocery. Yeah, The green grocer, so all the salad bags and all of the um, beautiful fresh produce from the garden go into the green grocer store. And we also supplement the products in there with um, other local um, growers. A big, move, a big move, I imagine, in 2017, Angie, when the tap room opened. That's always a handy cash flow. 
That that was a that was a good one, and that was a bit of a work in progress. So Townsend Brewery um, approached us and and built their new brewery on this on site. So that's that's independently owned by the brewer, and then we have done the tap room to to sell license to um, the punters that have a beer in the restaurant and then decide they want to take some home, which is great. So that tap room was built then, and um, yeah, there's exciting things happening there. We're sort of going into partnership with a number of local brewers to bring the best uh, local products from the region. That includes wines, and and Nelson's wines are interesting. Of course, it's got its, you know, um, rowdy cousin just um, uh, uh, along the road a bit in in Marlborough that that hogs the limelight, but there are some outstanding um, wines being made, whether it's in the um, Mitri Valley or elsewhere. Goodness, I had a Pinot Noir, um, which is not normally a wine you'd associate particularly with Nelson. You think Central Otago or, um, or, or uh, Wararapa or whatever. It was a stunner. I mean, frankly, it was, you know, it was off the scale. I won't name the winery, partly because I can't remember it. But, like, you know, it's a great way, isn't it, with the tourists coming through to show off um, the Nelson wines that are sometimes don't get the headlines the way the neighbour does. Absolutely, yeah. This region is sometimes forgotten as a great uh, wine region, but there are some spectacular wineries around here, and we're excited to showcase the best of the best in our restaurant. And we've been working closely with a lot of the winemakers, and we've recently started a um, wine night from degustations where people come in and we have a Pinot Noir night or we have a Chardonnay night, and the the winemakers come and do a bit of a spiel, and we serve you the best food that you can get and, and it's a fun night and it's another great networking um, opportunity within the community. All right. How big is it now? How many staff? How many customers? Uh, it's, it, like, I, I think we've reached capacity with um, the customers that come through the door in summer particularly, but even over winter now, you know, you used to let everyone, all the staff, go back to university and go off and do other things in the winter and now we're permanently looking for staff in the winter time because it's so nice and steady and um, yeah I'm very grateful that we're at a place that we're consistent through the winter and then you know it goes into a bit of insanity in the summer where the poor old staff are just hanging on for their life because it's so intense and it's so busy uh, and then it and then it sort of drops off to a nice consistent level in the winter that that's not too stressful. Angie Morris is our guest. We're talking about Total, recently named Best Cafe in New Zealand. Many of you will have at least driven past it because if you've gone from Nelson to Mott and beyond, you will have. Uh, many, many of you, as we're hearing, uh, stop in and enjoy it. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. So up until that point, 2007, Angie, what was your hospitality experience? My hospitality experience up until 2007 was zero. I had never been in hospitality. Um, I We shopped here. This was a, a pretty cool place to bring my children after school and things like that to get a real fruit ice cream. And I happened to be chatting to the owner one day and he said, oh, you don't want to buy it, do you? I'm selling. And uh, for some reason, I thought that was a great idea. And so I went home to Hamish and said, Hamish, we should buy Total. It's for sale. And we went to our lovely bank manager and said, hey, I know we have no money in the bank and we really don't own much, but could we borrow some money to buy Toad Hall? And it was in the good old days where the bank manager lent you 100% of what you needed to buy the place. And somehow he saw potential in us and he lent us 100% of the mortgage to buy Toad Hall. So the rest is history. Just like that, yeah.
Yeah. <laughs> hey, Michelle, I think it's got um, farming, Creed's farming background, yeah? Yes, so he's come from an arable uh, cropping farm where they used to grow a lot of uh, Goodman Fielder's wheat and a lot of um, the malting barley for the beer makers. So he he grew up, so that's, he's born and bred farm, farming stock, and we left the farm when his um, dad decided to sell up and, and retire. So we decided it was a good opportunity for us to go and try something else. Well, you were in the police force yourself. More on the uh, more on the career moves in a moment. Um, you were in the police force early on, I think. Did you join quite young? I joined at twenty, so I joined in nineteen ninety two. That is young. I know it wasn't regarded as young. They said the cadetships back in the day when they were about eighteen, didn't they? But twenty yes, these days did. would be considered young. Um, and you were obviously a bit of a star. Just to explain, I, th- I think you raced through the um, the exams, and someone caught you know caught sight of you in your early years. That's a funny story, though, because when you when you graduate from police college, you have to. So you're considered a probationary constable, and you've got um, I think two years of exams, and it. I think that works out as one every two months or something. And there are exams just on on legalities and, and laws that you should know and processes that you should know within the police as a young, you know, inexperienced constable. And just the mere thought of me having to have two years' worth of exams was enough to make me want to just do one exam a week, sometimes two or three a week, just to get them off the table so I didn't have to worry about them. So, you know, that must have appeared... To the bosses to look like I was fairly conscientious and wanting to, you know, climb the career ladder, which is not really what my motivation was. So I got approached really early on in my time in the police. I think I'd been out of police college for about three or four months, and I got approached to go to Davenport and do the Navy dive course to join the police dive squad. And I think. I think that was in early political times when, when you know, like institutions like the police were needing to show that they were trying to offer equal employment opportunities for females. So fair, um, fair, fair to say you were the first female to go on this course? I was definitely the first uh, female from the police to go on this course. So the, the, the Navy dive course is what they do to train the Navy SEALs. And um, it, when we did the course, it was a um, mixture of um, Navy, Customs, and there was myself and Hamish. That's actually where I met Hamish, my partner, of the last 30 years. That was the upside of the whole experience. That was the upside. There was really plenty of downsides to that whole experience. So that that's a story in itself because it was an institution where they vehemently did not want any females in the in the last male bastion and one in the police but also the navy prided themselves on no female ever passing the navy seals dive course and they were fairly vocal and aggressive towards me when i arrived and assured me that i would never be passing the course so i may as well go home on the first day and save them all the trouble so yeah that that was that was an experience because I it didn't it didn't bother me the fact that they were so adamant against a female passing the course and the the, the meaner they were to me the more it motivated me to never quit the course because I'm I'm not giving them the satisfaction of 
of quitting and then keeping their record of never having a female pass. So I was like, I, you know, the best, the best thing I can do here is not quit, and it's going to really annoy them. What did you have to go through, though? Because I imagine it's a reasonably gruelling course. Talk us through some of what it involved. Well, I mean, there was obviously a lot of diving, but there was a lot of torture as well. So, um, you know, that you had to do ridiculous things, which I would seriously question. I'm pretty sure I left yeah, a worse diver than I was when I arrived. Um, you know, there'd be things like uh, that you had to do these these swims and, you, you, you know, you had your wetsuit and your flippers on and you had to hold a lead weight on your chest and lie on your back and flipper this course in the Devonport Harbour um, and, you know, like you had to go around these boys and you weren't allowed out of the water until you'd done 10 laps of this course. And so because, you know, this was a couple of weeks into the course and they were getting a little bit nervous that they hadn't already got rid of me, this particular day we had to do this, this flipper course where you've got this weight on your chest and they decided that, you know, really to finish me off, they'd drive beside me in the IRB and just flick the back of the boat around every couple of minutes to flood me with water to try and choke me so I'd let the weight go and give up the course. And they did this for, um, like, honestly, two to three hours of me flippering around the course. And I was like, really, this is the end. I don't think I can go on. This is so horrible to experience. It was It was really upsetting because everyone else is back on the dock and and I'm still going around the course and they're flooding me with water and laughing at me as I'm flippering around and then to get you get back to the um, wharf and the only way you're allowed to get back up onto the top of the wharf is to climb up these ropes and you've got flippers on you've got wetsuit on and you've got to climb up these ropes to get onto the wharf so I'd gone through hours of them torturing me with this, you know, flooding water over me and laughing at me. Waterboarding, I I think it's known as. I'm not sure what it is. Well, it's what it is, but it's used as torture. Yeah, yeah, and they they thought it was hilarious. And then I get back, and I I was exhausted, and I was trying to get up the rope onto the wharf, and um, I'd get halfway up, and then I'd fall back down because my arms and legs were so weak. And then it was it was such a beautiful scene. And at the same time, we're on this course. The SAS were on a course up there, and they're using um, apparatus that doesn't show any bubbles. And suddenly, I hear this voice, and this person's talking to me. And I'm like, "What is? Who's talking to me?" And then one of the SAS guys had swum in under the wharf, and he and he said, and he he started coaching me, and he said, "Come on, you can't let them win. You cannot let them win." One one hand above, and he stood there talking me through the ropes and talked me out. But still to this day, they don't know that this SAS guy was under the wall coaching me up the rope. And so eventually I got up the rope and onto the onto the wharf and that was the day they really thought they had me and, and that it was over and they could keep their record of never having a female pass. But thanks to that SAS um, guy that coached me up the rope, that I lived for another day. And that was kind of, the, the whole course was like that. It's unbelievable um, attitude. But for me, you know, I'm grateful. It made me a, a stronger person. It made me a better person. And it made me realise how some people must feel every day as females, you know, in, a, in an, either in a culture or a religion or, you know, an industry that doesn't want females there. Goodness, um, technically not waterboarding, I should say, which of course is a t- torture technique involving yeah. um, the constraint of someone and um, his extra measures. But 
I don't know. Did, did anyone ever change their... When you proved yourself ten times beyond them, did anyone ever change their attitude or right till the end did it stay? Oh, right to the end it stayed. You know, right to the point that they'd make me have extra extra things that I had to do and carry extra weight and do extra laps and right to the end they were like that. And you know, even you'd come back from having just done four hours of, of, of diving and you'd get back to the wharf and, you know, they'd, and lunch was served and it was obviously coming from the, um, the meal rooms at Davenport Navy Base and they would have eaten all the meat and all the potatoes and they'd hand me a piece of bread and some peas and go, there's your lunch. And I'm like, whatever, I can eat bread and peas. You know, I'm not going to let this bother me. But that was very much the attitude. That, that, and they were all young guys and it made me think, what? how do you treat your wives? If you think it's okay to treat someone like this eight hours a day, what happens when you go home to your wives? Did you um did you stay in the police long? I know you didn't. Both of you moved on fairly quickly. But did you work as a police diver for a while? Because I, the irony is, once you're into it, I imagine it's actually, you know, sort of meticulous, kind of tedious, as is any kind of police searching work, often in sort of very grotty conditions with low visibility. It's important work, um, and, and thanks to people for it. But did you do much? And, and what was your experience of it? So, yeah, I... I so once I graduated from there, and you know what, by no means was I a, a strong diver after that. I was probably just mentally strong. So I did I did go on to the dive squad for about 18 months um, before I transferred down south. But you did lots of different jobs. I mean, you did do body recovery. You did, um, you know, you were searching for exhibits that had been thrown into water when, you know, there'd be a crime and someone threw... Um, firearms or something like that into waterways we'd search for them and unfortunately a lot of it is body recovery so um, really challenging definitely not pleasurable um, and it was also one of those jobs that it was hard to have a life outside the dive squad because at any time of day or night you could be called to a job um, so it was hard to plan anything or, or have a life outside of the place because you were permanently getting called to different jobs well, you both left not long after. I think there was an interlude with some time on the land in, in Timaru and, and then the move to Motueka. Um Sometimes it sounds like life for you has been just saying sort of yes in the moment, Angie, and it's amazing how many uh, high achievers are prepared to do that. You know, you're standing in, in a shop and someone says, do you want to buy it? And it's not like it's mindless. There'll be a lot of things you've been thinking through about life that made that sentence in that moment makes sense but a lot of it is what just about saying yes I'll give this a go yeah absolutely you know like and I always say to my own children opportunity comes at the most inconvenient times sometimes you know and here was something that fitted into a vision that we'd had there was a beautiful five bedroomed house with the land there was a big block of land large sheds you know it meant that the kids grew up in a rural property in town so they could still bike the things um, it fitted our vision of, of nourishing community and nourishing, you know, like the, the planet with our business practices and nourishing our people. And, you know, it really did, it, it kind of felt like divine intervention in a way and that it just felt right. Uh, the bank manager said, yep, I'm going to lend you 100% to buy that place. And, and the rest is history, you know, like we we kind of, went with the flow and everywhere the flow took us we sort of embraced it and made changes but you know I really want to give 
huge recognition to the absolute love and commitment so many staff have shown for the last 15 years because without them, none of this would have happened. Angie, thank you. A lot of love coming your way as well from listeners. Thanks very much. Angie Morris uh, of Total, recently named the best cafe in New Zealand. It is on the main drag coming in south side of Motueka.